was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. You know those weight loss shows where they show the picture of the person before they go on the diet and the boot camp exercise, and then six months later, they show the after? Well, this next episode is the Built to Sell Radio equivalent of that, in that Gary Nealon sold his company, RTA Cabinet, the wrong way in the beginning, and ultimately got a couple of lowball offers, which he decided to ignore. He kind of licked his wounds and went back out to market, making three fundamental changes to the way he positioned his company and almost quadrupled the value he got for his business. Here to tell you the entire story and the three things he did to jack up his valuation is Gary Nealon. Hey, Gary, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be with you. So you guys kind of own the internet, at least the business of, of making cabinets online, RTA cabinet store. I mean, if you just Google like online cabinets, like RTA seems to pop no matter where you are in the world. Yep. Uh, tell us about this company. What did you guys do? For people who don't know RTA, give us a description of the company. Yeah, so RTA, uh, it's actually an abbreviation for ready to assemble. Um, so it's a category of kitchen cabinets. Uh, we just sort of brought it to mainstream. Uh, we were one of the first to really figure out how to sell online because prior to that, uh, it was a sort of an antiquated industry. Most of the companies, you know, they would have a website, but you'd have to call and talk to somebody or you would have to go into a showroom. Uh, and I wanted to circumvent that. So we essentially created an online platform that allowed people, regardless of their experience, whether they were a pro, an amateur or whatever, could actually shop online and be able to do the same things that you would do with any other retails or any other. Matt, like, I kind of get like, I kind of break out in sweats thinking about this. Like I'm the least technical guy you could ever imagine. So the idea of, of like getting a bunch of boxes on a pallet and like, okay, ready to go assemble would be not my wheelhouse. So I'm assuming it's not people like me who buy this. I'm assuming it's kind of people who feel a little bit more handy and are like, would it so be it, consumers or who's the- It's interesting. We, we actually had about a 50-50 mix of like professionals, like contractors, builders, and then the rest were home, uh, just homeowners. Um, we hit the market right when like DIY network and HDTV were like really starting to become popular. Um, mm-hmm. And we actually got in with some of the TV shows. So we were hmm. doing roughly 40 or so shows per year. We were donating the cabinets and then we would get all the marketing exposure out of it. So we kind of became, even though our- our name was a generic term, RTA cabinet store. That was more for SEO purposes. Uh, we actually sort of became trademarked as like the company for RTA cabinets uh, just because of our association with the TV shows and everything else that was going on. 
Wow. How did you get them to choose you? I imagine that those, I mean, obviously those home improvement shows are huge. I'd imagine they've got lots of choices of cabinet makers to, to partner with. Why you guys? Yeah, so it was interesting. I was doing, I was trying to get as much free exposure as possible. So back then I was writing a lot of articles. Uh, I was doing a lot of press releases on my own. Uh, and we actually caught the eye of one of the producers for one of the shows. Um, it was the original producer for Trading Spaces. He went off and he did the show card called Carter Can. Um, they reached out to us because they had a supplier who actually dropped the ball for them and couldn't get them the cabinets in time for the show. Ooh. So they... <laughs> randomly called us. They're like, I know this is a big ask, but like we need cabinets in seven days in California. Uh, what can you do? I was like, Oh, I could do that. And you know, I just wasn't really sure how I was going to do it. I just knew that I was going to end up doing it just for the TV show. So we actually worked all the details out, was able to get them there in time and they loved it. Cause it was just, it was easy for them to assemble. It was, you know, the contractors were familiar with them. So then they called us for the next show and the next show. And then what ended up happening is like with any of those TV shows, they have like a run rate of, you know, a couple of years after a couple of years, all those producers then went to other shows. So we started getting, picking up like another show, another show. And we just made it so easy to work with us that like, it was no brainer for them. They would just, every show, they would just come to us and be like, Hey, can we get this, 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 this. And were you able to tie back appearance on XYZ show to direct sales? Or was it sort of one of those kind of just, you kind of know it's working, but you can't directly attribute which show. Only, yeah. So the only thing that we could directly attribute was, uh, in the beginning, so it sort of shifted over time. As the shows became more popular, they gave you less marketing exposure, um, and they actually started buying the cabinet. So they were the, the dynamic changed a bit. But in the beginning, uh, we would get the rights to everything that they produced. So we could actually take that show, turn it into TV commercials, turn it into video ads, whatever we wanted, and leverage the high-quality production that they had for our own marketing purposes. So in that respect, we could take like a clip showing the homeowner super excited about their new cabinets, cool. reference the show and tie that back to a sale. But the actual TV shows, it was hard to do. Like we randomly, we'd ask, you know, we'd always ask, Hey, where'd you hear of us? And occasionally we'd hear, Oh yeah, we just saw this show that aired. And we could actually, in some cases, depending on which TV show it was, we could see a spike when they actually aired the show. So mm. there was some correlation, but it wasn't direct. And the actual cabinets themselves, I understand you sold, you kind of resold other people's brands and you also manufactured your own is that right yeah so originally it was just a dropship model um we so the industry is kind of unique that there's wholesale distributors that import them from china in the united states they're big guys i mean they might have 30 million 40 million dollars worth of inventory but they mostly deal with retail so when we were approaching them it was kind of a new concept they're like you know well yeah sure we'll sell you some um and we ended up keeping the dropship model for a long time. And then I started figuring out which cabinets were selling well and I started importing them myself. Um, but then I realized I'm not really a warehouse guy. I'm really a marketing guy. So <laughs> I didn't know how to manage the inventory and everything else. So we shifted back to a dropship model uh, at, before I ended up selling the company. Got it, got it. So you were taking the order, finding the supply, shipping it to yep. uh, the customer or whatever. So what kind of margins are you working on? Like what would a typical, what would a good year have been in terms of an EBITDA margin at the end of the year? It, it was pretty thin. Uh, so we went for high volume, lower margins simply because we knew we were competing with like Home Depot and Lowe's. So we could, mm -hmm. we could crush them on price and that's what we really wanted to do. We wanted to be able to market to those people that were going into Home Depot and say, hey, we could save you 50% off what Home Depot just quoted you. So I'd say on an average year, we were anywhere from like 10 to maybe 8% 
at the end of the year. Uh, so it wasn't massive. We, we had thinner margins. We were just going for velocity and, and driving as much traffic as we could. Got it. And speaking of traffic, like how big did you get this company before you decided to sell, like in terms of either number of employees or revenue or whatever? Yeah. So revenue wise, we, we were doing about 40 million a year uh, last okay. year. Um, employee wise, we kept it really thin. So I was, uh, I always wanted to be cautious and I didn't want to overgrow the staff just in case we, you know, sales went down or whatever. So in-house, I think we had a total of maybe 18 and then we used subcontractors for everything else. So we've probably had another 18 to 20 people subcontracted. Got it. Got it. And was there a trigger that made you think, okay, now's the right time to sell? I've always looked at it was, uh, I always want to make sure that if I was going to pass it on to somebody else that a, I, it was on a growth trajectory so that they were able to get some fruit of my labor out of it. Sure. Um, I, I never wanted to like be on a downward trend where somebody would take it over and suddenly they'd feel like they got gypped or anything else like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the trigger point was when I realized that, you know, my skill sets, the marketing side, I'm really good at strategy, marketing, all that good stuff. When we started growing and I started doing more of the day-to-day like managing people and everything else like that I was getting pulled away from marketing and I knew that my skill set was probably going to be not enough to keep keep it going so the way I looked at it was if I can bring in somebody that's really strong operationally and take over the company and they can just follow my marketing plan they can continue to grow and then they can streamline that operation so that that was sort of my thought process when I was thinking about uh, selling. So that's kind of thematic. That was sort of something that was burbling, you know, percolating in the background. Do, do you recall if there was a, a specific kind of straw that broke the camel's back, like a day, a moment in time where you're like, oh my God, I, I really need to sell this company. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it probably was. I mean, we were hiring at that point. We were, we were looking to hire a bunch of kitchen designers and build out a kitchen team. And I, I realized that for an entire like two weeks, I hadn't focused on any of the marketing. And I was like, hold on, like this is I mean, what my core skill set is, I'm not even doing anymore. I was like, I just, I need to figure out a way to either pass this on to somebody else or hire somebody that could take over all that and let me just focus on what my core skill set was. Right. So one option would have been to sell the company. It sounds like that was sort of one option on the table. I guess another perhaps you considered was bringing in someone to run the business. Tell me, did you consider both? Yeah. So I, I actually, I brought, I, I had a team member that um, was actually a really good friend of mine who uh, came, he would start, actually was with me from the start of the company and he kept working his way up and I actually put him into an operations manager role. Um, what, what I started to realize though was that I, A, marketing was my skill set and I was starting to run out of options in terms of like new platforms, new things to discover. It was more just a management side of it for me at that point. Um, mm-hmm. But then I also knew that like there was other things I wanted to do. Um, and I couldn't focus on both at the same time. So I started a software development company because we were creating like mobile apps and other things that went in with the cabinet company. And I realized that at some point I was going to spread myself too thin. And if I did that revenue might start dropping for the cabinet company. So my passion started to shift more towards like helping other companies and the tech side than it was running the day-to-day operations of the company. Tell me about your ops manager. Cause it sounds like this is a friend of yours. Uh, someone who has been in the business from the beginning, why not sell him or her the business or transition it over time to that? Um, I, you know, I, I didn't really think of that route. I really, what I thought was how could I uh, maintain the livelihood of the employees and bring in somebody that already has some experience in running a company like this mm-hmm. versus trying to pass it on to somebody that's kind of just coming up. Cause you know, he, he was great. And, you know, he, he's learned really, really quick, but he still needed somebody to a little bit of, of a mentoring process. 
Uh, and I'm not good at that. I knew that like me being the mentor for somebody wasn't going to be the good fit. So, uh, for me, selling was more of, was a better option than that. Got it. So what did you do next? I mean, when you had this decision, you'd taken this decision to sell, what was the next step for you? Uh, for me, it was reached out to sort of my network and just like, what is the process? Cause I'd never gone through the process of selling a business. So I, you know, I didn't know what to do. Um, I had a couple of guys that were internet, had internet based companies. Um, so I reached out to them, like, who did you use? What was your experience? And just sort of did that sort of due diligence on different companies. And mm-hmm. my first go around, I went with, uh, basically an internet based business broker, um, mm-hmm. as a first approach. What did your peers in these other internet-based marketing companies tell you about the process of selling? Like, take me inside your inbox. Like, what did they say? So it was interesting. I I was, um, so to backtrack a second, I I went through two iterations of selling the company. Uh, One was an internet-based broker, and then I went through an M&A firm. Um, The mistake I made was that my company wasn't just an internet-based company. It wasn't like an Amazon business. It wasn't just a true e-commerce business. We had physical location with a warehouse. We had all these different complexities that a lot of these companies didn't deal with, uh, which I didn't recognize in the beginning. So I was thinking it was just a true e-commerce play. We went through an internet broker um, and it's a very different process than going through an M&A firm. Uh, Why? What's the difference in your mind? So with them, it's almost like a real estate transaction. They come in, they value the business based off EBITDA, they set a price and they just go to market. Uh, with an M&A firm, what I discovered was that they actually kind of do like a forecasting model, a five-year forecasting model. They'll actually project all that out and then they'll go to market and ask what the market wants, not what, you know, what di- price we want to dictate. And I, the difference for me was that like, I went through a couple buyers through the original broker everybody was coming in just like a real estate transaction. They're looking for imperfections so that they can beat down the price. The second process going through an M&A firm, when you're going and you're saying this company will be worth X in five years, what would it be worth to you now? They're now setting the price. So when they do their due diligence, they're trying to justify why they set that price versus why you set the price. And it's a completely different conversation where they're like, you know, little, you know, little things within the, uh, the financials, they'd be like, this is a little different, but you know what? we'll overlook that because we see the potential uh, versus somebody coming in and being like, Hey, this number's off by $10. We want to deduct X, Y, Z from it, you know? Right. So with the first go around uh, where you listed the business, sort of uh, you, you put a price on it. Yeah. So the broker did uh, just simply based on literally just taking the, you know, bottom line EBITDA, putting a multiple on it, what the average was in the industry and went to market. Uh, what did he list that? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, I don't even remember what the price was. I think it was like 1.8 or 1.9. And I was like, this thing's way, way more than that, but it was based off of revenue and everything else. And then they like, the buyers were trying to beat, beat it down on that. So then, um, you know, I ended up backing out of the last deal. The first two of them fell off. The last one, I was like, no, you know what? I'm just going to pull it off the market. Uh, and then when we went with the M and a firm, we actually got it up to a much higher multiple simply because we did all this forecasting and we kind of repositioned the company to no longer be just an e-commerce company. It was a tech company that happened to sell kitchen cabinets. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about the difference in the experience. So, so you go back out with an M&A firm. One of the things that they do for you is they, they forecast out the future revenue and profitability of the company over a five-year period. Is mm-hmm. that right? What else yeah. do they do? You mentioned, you mentioned positioning the company as opposed to just an e-commerce company, it was 
how do they change the positioning? So what we did was we really looked at uh, when they do the forecasting, they're essentially saying, you know, if you were to keep the company for the next five years, what, what did you have planned or what, what um, new strategies or anything were you going to implement? I would, you know, we did this deep dive kind of strategy session and we figured out like what we were going to do if we were going to keep it for five years. And then they bring in a professional accountant to actually forecast that. So it's not like fictitious numbers. It's actually based off of true numbers. But one of the things that we discovered in the process was that we were building all this tech. So we built like apps for, like you were saying, like you couldn't imagine a thousand pounds showing up at your house, you know, mm, the kitchen cabinet. Yeah. Well, shipping was a big issue for us because a lot, of, a lot of customers didn't know what to do when they get 40 boxes that weigh a thousand pounds. Like there's a whole process. You have to inspect it. You have to do all these things. If you don't, then there's no way you can file a claim. So we started creating technology around that that would actually walk them through the process so that it was foolproof. It allowed us to cover our, our butts in case there was a claim. Uh, and then even like creation of bill ladings and stuff like that, when you're using trucking companies, all this tech was built and they're like, well, wait a minute, why are we not selling the tech versus the cabinet company? You know, our, your, your margins on cabinets are, you know, 8% margins on tech are 20, 25%. So we just took it off the market, went back, trademarked and, and as many of the technologies that we had created as possible, and package that up as a bundle and just said, you could plug any physical product into this business. It's not necessarily just the cabinets, but that's just a, a bonus on top of it. Wow. Okay. So, so in the future, in the second round, you package the technology. And so the acquirer was to get not only the company, but also the technology that supported it. Right. Got it. And so did you guys run a process? Like how many companies did you did the M and A firm go to, to sort of gauge interest? Um, I'd say total, they probably went to about 40 or 50. Uh, so some okay. of them were strategic. Some of them were just people that they know had been buying businesses like that. Um, so the company we ended up with happened to be in the home improvement niche. So they were already selling products that were complimentary. So same customer base. Uh, but then they could take our platform, which is our shopping cart solution and everything else and literally dump all those other products into it and make it a more streamlined system versus using standardized platforms like Shopify or Magento or any of those kind of things. Got it. So you go to 50 or uh, 40 or 50 different companies. What was the reaction? Like did, how many of those companies sort of raise their hand and say, yeah, I think we'd be interested in taking a closer look. We had probably about six or seven initially. Uh, and interesting thing was that price was all over the board. So it was anywhere from what our original listing price was all the way up to, you know, eight figures. Um, and each one, the deal structure was a little bit different. So we really had to sit down and analyze it and be like, okay, how much, how much equity do we want to keep on the table? How much do we want to take off? How much are we willing to earn out versus cash up front? Um, you know, what's the potential if company A takes it versus company B takes it? Um, so we had a lot of, there was a lot of variables in there that we had to look at when we were actually approaching or figuring out which company we we're going to go with. So again, I, I've just written down a couple of those things, but so, so some of the offers included an earnout, which was kind of one variable. Another was they were asking you to carry forward some equity into a new entity. I'm assuming the private equity buyers were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And then the, and then clearly that all predicated on the quality of the acquiring company, how good their management was and right. how confident you were. Were there any other things that you were, it sounds like reverse due diligence, you're sort of evaluating those offers. Were there any other things that made an offer either more or less attractive for you? Yeah, for me, I, I was really want to make sure that they didn't just eliminate the staff because we, it did come with a physical location. And if, you know, if one company was, let's say in Florida, 
and their only other entity was in Pennsylvania, would they really want to keep the staff and the warehouse and everything, or would they eliminate that and just shift it all to another location? Uh, so I really want to make sure that that was factored in there that, you know, the employees weren't just going to be suddenly cut the next day or, or anything like that. And we were going to be able to keep that moving. So you had six or seven companies that of the 50 that sort of expressed interest. Did, did you guys like how, how formal was the interest? Did you actually get letters of intent from them or were they more just verbal or what? How, what did yeah. So we, we'd go through initially it would be a verbal kind of offer. It'd be like soft offer. Like, would you entertain this? Uh, if we included these factors, you know, like I said, like equity or whatever, there was no very specific numbers uh, mentioned. Um, and then once we got into that, we had uh, exclusivity on the LOI. So we went, we would narrow that down and we narrowed it down to the one company and then gave them the opportunity. To and so what was attractive about the, the company that you, you ultimately got engaged to in the, you know, the, the exclusivity agreement? I think it was the, the fact that they knew the space because home improvement's different than some of the other niches. Um, mm -hmm. Like our company, much longer buying cycle. We can go anywhere from, you know, next day purchase all the way to two years later. So you really have to understand that. And if you're dealing with physical products that you're used to, you know, instantaneous buys or impulse buys, you're, you're not going to be really understand that man, the management of that process. Uh, I also want to see synergies of, you know, can they overlap? Are there opportunities for them to cross sell, use their list to build the list for the company that was, you know, that I had. Um, so those were some of the variables, just making sure they understood the niche that they had some consistency in terms of customer base that, that would overlap to help grow the company. And, and I knew if they had that, then there's exponential growth potential simply by, you know, synergies of merging the companies. Got it. And, and did you automatically go to the highest bidder? I mean, were these guys the, the, no, the we top actually, we actually had somebody that came in at, at a higher price, uh, or, or higher dollar amount. Um, but it, it, I don't know, just something to me just didn't seem like it was the right fit. Um, it was the management staff. Like when I was, so I had very specific questions that I wanted to make sure they understood because I, I ran all the marketing. I want to make sure that they really understood how that marketing strategy works. And that other company, I just, there was something about it. I was just like, I don't have a lot of confidence in the fact that they're going to be able to continue to do what I've been doing. Um, so that's why I ended up going with the company I went with. In a multiple of like, it sounds like the ultimate offer that you, you ended up going with was like kind of a multiple of what you were originally listing it for. Like yes. three, four times more. Like, yeah, it's always almost four idea. times as much. Yeah. That's staggering. Yes. <laughs> like it's life-changing numbers for sure. No, it, it absolutely is. And I think, you know, when I look back, I think I was willing to accept the first offer simply because I was getting burnt out. But then once I stepped back and, you know, really looked at the value of the company, I was like, it's worth a lot more. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that offer I'm assuming had some sort of, uh, proportionate risk. Did it have, was it an earn out or, um, were you asked to take some shares in the acquirers company or, or mixture originally, of yeah, original offer, um, was, uh, 80, 20 cash versus equity. Uh, I wasn't comfortable keeping 20% on the table. So I kept 10. Um, cause after talking to a couple of people that had high dollar value exits, I was literally just told whatever you don't get on the front end, just assume you'll never get it and consider it a bonus. So hmm. I was willing to leave 10% on the table. I wasn't willing to leave 20. Um, and that was just my personal preference. So the 10 rolled into a new entity, I'm assuming. Yeah. And then there was there an earn out on top of that? No, it was just, uh, the, the, those was, were the only two variables. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. And, as you went through the diligence process, I've heard it described by entrepreneurs of 
the, the most crude would be like the entrepreneur's proctology exam. I, I, uh, yep. I think that's probably <laughs> as bad as, as, as I've heard, but the, you know, it runs the gamut. What was your experience like in diligence? I mean, did, was so there anything I, surprising about it? I had two very different experiences actually. So the first yeah. one I would equate to exactly what you just said. Uh, yeah. It was almost like a second full-time job because you're, you're being asked a lot of questions. You have to produce a lot of paperwork and everything else. When we had pulled it off the table and the M&A firm came in, they actually built a, a data library so that we took six months, got every document that you can imagine into that library so that if there were questions, they didn't have to bombard me with them. Uh, M&A firm managed as much of that as they could. And then I would only get maybe one or two questions per week. So for me, I could still run the company and not have to have all my focus on the actual sale of the company, which was great. I mean, it was, it was exactly what I needed at that time. So you pulled that stuff together in advance so that you didn't yeah. have to sort of furnish it. How did you know what they might ask? That, that was the thing. I, I had no concept. It, the M&A firm actually, since they had sold so many companies, had a general idea of what questions are going to be asked. So they did a really good job of like grilling me ahead of time, getting all that information together. And then they were able to answer most of those questions. Uh, but it runs the gambit. I mean, they would ask, I mean, something like, what was this expense from five years ago? I was like, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I barely remember yesterday, but I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I could dig up some information on it. So it, yeah, it ranges. And I think it also depends on the, you know, whether it's a private equity firm or an independent buyer, if they have, if they're savvy and they've bought multiple businesses, they probably have an entire checklist. Whereas somebody that's like just an independent buyer or maybe a, a group of people that never bought a business before, they're not going to go as in depth as a private equity firm would. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What kind of retraining did you have to deal with? Uh, in terms of training their staff or training? Or no, I meant, I said, I meant retraining. Like did they, after the due diligence process, did you get a haircut in terms of the original offer? Did they try to lower it? No, it was, it was an interesting timing. So uh, it was coming down the, the LOI expired in like November, I think. Um, which is right when our peak season hits. But ironically enough, kitchen cabinets, we sell in, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we sell more than we do in an entire month and a half. So it was a funny? big, big payout coming in terms of sales. So it, you know, there may have been a little bit of negotiation back and forth, but I was like, okay, you could drag this out and you're going to miss all the holiday revenue, or you can take it now, get all that holiday revenue. And I, you know, and I lose out. So there was, it was, kind of a good timing for me in terms yeah. of that respect where there's like almost like a deadline for us. What are people doing buying, <laughs> buying cabinets over the holidays? Like here, honey, I, I bought you cabinets. No like, idea. I know. <laughs> I, like, the first couple of years I was shocked. I was like, that is the last time I'm thinking about buying a new kitchen. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Who knew? Well, anyways, it, it benefited you because you got yes. the, the pressure to close and, and a bit of leverage over. Yeah. Interesting. What did you do? You know, of course, when you sign a non-compete or a no-shop clause at that letter of intent stage, you're, you're obviously giving up a little bit of leverage because now you're yeah. sort of getting engaged. What did you do to do reverse due diligence on the buyer? Like, how did you how did you know they were legit? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I had a good process for that because even when, like when I first took it to market, there were a couple guys that, you know, I didn't know how to evaluate whether they were serious or not. And every one of them wanted a locked in LOI for at least 30 days. So you're literally taking it off the market for 30 days and you can't do anything with it. Uh, 
the, the first two actually fell through. They would go to the last day and they would just back out. So um, the, my only process for doing that was if they were in the same niche, I want to make sure that they weren't just trying to get data about us by doing the, the LOI. Um, if they're outside the niche, I just started grilling them. I'm like, how, how are you going to grow this? Like really make sure that they had a strategy because if they're looking at the business, they should already have some sort of strategy if they're going to incorporate it into what they already have. And if they don't, then I know they're not going to be a serious buyer. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I had a, a good process because I've, we went through five or six different buyers. So it wasn't like we, you know, honed in on the first one. And what was it that the ultimate acquirer saw as strategic in acquiring you guys? So we were, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we would have been the equivalent of what their entire portfolio was. So we were, we were going to become the biggest chunk of it. Um, I think it was the fact that we were bringing in high dollar buyers with the propensity to buy online. Because uh, our average order size could be anywhere from $3,000 to $10,000. So that type of buyer is significantly different from somebody that's buying a $12 product on Amazon. Uh, you know that you can sell them high dollar, high risk items online and they don't have a, an objection to spending it on a credit card. Uh, the number of people that would buy our cabinet sight unseen, I, I'm still shocked. Like I, I, myself personally, I don't think I could ever do it. And yet people were coming on our website, wouldn't even get a sample. They would just order cabinets, put them in and love them. So that wow. type of buyer is, has a propensity to buy just about anything. And I think that's what they're looking for. They've got a, like a platinum card that, that works and that they yeah. can buy, if they buy cabinets, they could also buy a number of other things. What, yeah, what else? Like, would, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, yeah, they could okay. buy so some of their other portfolio was like fireplace mantles, uh, heating registers, those types of things. So if somebody spends, you know, let's say for argument's sake, $6,000 on a kitchen, it's really easy to understand that they're probably going to remodel something else in their home. And as long as they have a portfolio of other products, they can continue to build that lifetime value. I think that's what they were mm -hmm. missing. It was like that lifetime value aspect. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And that was what was strategic. You know, as you think about this exit, is there anything that you might do differently had you had it to do over again? Yeah. The one thing I, I think, the, I wouldn't say it's a mistake because I don't look back and say anything was a mistake. It got me to where I'm at. But uh, after the closing, there was pieces of technology that we had created that I rolled in thinking I was creating value and that they would want. But at the end of the day, they could care less about it. So hmm. I actually ended up taking some of that back. But, and some of it they kept. I think I would have spun it off into a separate entity and offered them the option of leasing it. And if not, I could have continued to use it and sell it to other people. Uh, but in my mind, I was trying to create as much value as possible. So that was like, it was hard to argue with whatever valuation they came up with. But I, I think that's the only thing I would have done differently. was like spun off some of that tech and said, hey, if you want to keep it, I'll lease it to you. If not, I'll just keep it myself and I can do something with it. Right. Because as the, although in the early days when you were packaging the company up, it seemed like that was going to drive value. But ultimately, it was the lifetime value yeah. of your customers and what, what, what additional products this PE firm could sell to them was really the, yeah. the secret so for, sauce. Uh, a good example would be like our shopping cart solution. We had a custom shopping cart solution because of the way, you know, the number of pieces that go together and how it had all fit and everything. Uh, after I sold, I actually got approached by a couple other companies and they're like, hey, we would love to just take your shopping cart solution and use it because you created something that, you know, Shopify and everything else can't do. But at that point, I didn't own it anymore. So I, you know, I referred them over to them, but I was like, shoot, if I had owned it, I could have kept leasing that to other companies or doing something like that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I was happy with what I got. And so I'm not, not going to. Yeah, for sure. 
What scope of non-compete did you have to sign? I, it's interesting because uh, clearly um, you couldn't have started another cabinet company, I'm guessing, yep. but some of these ancillary technology companies, um, did they kind of lock you up and force you not to start any of those or what was No, that? it was really, uh, they want, obviously they wanted it as broad as possible. They wanted it to be anything in the home improvement niche. Um, I was like, listen, I have zero interest in starting another cabinet company. So can we just, you know, why don't we, why don't we narrow it down to exactly what our company did versus you know, the potential for if I wanted to sell hinges or something like that down the road. Um, mm -hmm. So we did a three-year non-compete uh, on kitchen cabinets specifically. Um, but honestly, I had no desire to go back into the space. I just want to make sure that it wasn't so broad that I can get categorized if I ended up selling something different. Right, right. Yeah, my experience is they kind of ask for the world and then you kind of have yes. to winnow it down a little bit to, to what's a little bit more reasonable. What did you see, you know, you, you had 50 potential buyers, six or seven of which were serious and, and sort of bedded in. Did anybody try to pull the wool over your eyes or, or pull a fast one? Anything slimy that, that, that the acquired or would be or potential acquired did that you were able to I catch can't them on? I verify it, but I think one of our competitors tried to come in just to get data on us because it was, mm. so what we, what we would do is we'd have sort of a little due diligence. Like let's make sure we know who actually owns the company and that kind of stuff. And there was one company that came in, it was a Delaware corporation that was then sub there, there were sub entities underneath it and you couldn't really identify who actually owned any of them. Mm. So those kind of things, I was like, we're staying away from that because if it is a competitor, like we don't want to give them all of our financial information and all of our secret sauce uh, if we don't have to. So, so it, was a, it was a bunch of hold codes and shell companies. You couldn't yeah. get underneath the, the, the acquirer wasn't willing to share who the yeah. sort of, yeah, that's really interesting uh, feedback. Because, uh, you know, for a lot of folks, that, you know, any offer is a good offer, right? It gives you leverage, et cetera. But as you point out, if it's a direct competitor, maybe not. Yeah. And uh, it's not uncommon for competitors to do that, uh, what I found out. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Did you celebrate in any way? I mean, you're, did, you, did you go out and buy a fancy car or a trophy of no. some sort to mark the um, occasion? I did. I, so I took a, I took a really nice vacation, uh, ended up taking my parents on vacation. Um, didn't do anything crazy. Um, I just, you know, I, I'd been, I'd almost worked myself out of the company anyway. So I was doing a lot of traveling and kind of experiencing life anyway. So, um, there was no sort of grand aha or, or big thing that I did that I could say is like directly related to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did you handle things with the friend of yours who was your sort of operations person? So I, my personal belief and whether it was right or wrong, you know, I can look back on it and say that either way, but uh, I kept it private because I didn't want the employees to find out that I was selling, especially after the first one kind of backed out. None of them were guaranteed. And the last thing I wanted to do was have all the employees think we're going to be sold in a month and then not happen. And I got to try to explain that and everything. Uh, so I tried to keep it as quiet as possible. Um, I ended up having, since he knew so much about the company and was sort of, I'd, he was sort of the brains at that point because I was backing out. I had to bring him in into the sales process part way. Um, in hindsight, probably should have brought him in earlier, but uh, it was just my belief was that I wanted to keep it as secure as possible until I knew that it was going to sell. You mentioned he's a, he was a friend of yours. Were you guys able to maintain that friendship through the process? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he ended up actually departing the company, started his own company. He's doing really well. Um, 
super happy for him. Um, and he's on his own path now. He started his company. He's got a couple employees and he's, he's doing what I was doing, you know, 10 or 11 years ago. <laughs> was there any, any sense of guilt on your behalf or envy on his that here's your, your partner in crime, your, you know, two musketeers and, and hold on a second. All of a sudden we're not equal and Gary's getting a big check and, and I'm not getting Yeah, I mean, There was a little bit of that. We had, we had a couple yeah. conversations after the closing. Um, I think he, you know, he wanted to be more informed of what was going on. He felt like I was hiding stuff from him. Um, you know, I tried to explain my mindset, but we ended up, at the end of the day, we ended up working it out, you know, figuring yeah. out, figuring all that out. And we've been good friends since. Cause a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this would, would have that same guilt, right? Like they consider their employees, like they couldn't do what they're doing without their employees. And, yeah. and yet when they sell, there's this sort of sense what should I share? Should I share any, you know, what's the role of ownership versus being an employee? And there's, there's also this, these conflicted emotions. Any yeah, advice yeah. for entrepreneurs kind of going through that sort of sense of confliction? Conflicted I, I'm not sure that I did it the right way or the wrong way. Uh, I guess it's everybody's, everybody has a different perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, since he was a friend from the beginning, I probably should have given him more information. Um, I just didn't want to get in, getting out to the rest of the employees. I think if it's somebody that you brought on later on and, you know, you end up becoming friends with them. I think you have less responsibility to inform them. It's more of, you know, you, I guess it's the, how, how defined is your ownership versus employee role? Uh, I treated everybody like family, so I probably should have had more engagement with them and just trusted that they would be responsible with the information. But I know some CEOs kind of keep that distance and, and gap between the employees. What was the reaction of the 18 kind of rank and file full-time employees when you told them you'd sold the company? Uh, I, I had already backed out of the company in terms of like day-to-day operations. So I was only going in maybe once a week or once every other week because I had actually moved to another city. Mm. So I think they got used to me not being there. Um, I think they were excited for the opportunities because realistically they're coming into a much larger company with opportunities to, you know, move up in, in their position and all that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd say the majority of them were excited. Uh, there was probably a couple that were nervous that they might lose their job or something like that. But bringing in that management team from the other company, having them talk to them, you know, along with me and explain, Hey, nothing's going to, you know, we're not changing anything. We're not shutting down the warehouse. We're not doing any of that stuff. I think that eased a lot of concerns. Uh, and that was one of the, like I said, one of my main concerns when I was selling the company. sounds like also it was a bit more gradual. Like they'd had a chance to get used to it, right? Like Gary's not sort of 50 hours a week in their, in their grill. Yeah, it wasn't like I was doing, you know, 60 hours a week. And then tomorrow I'm like, Hey, I'm out of here. See ya. Like, (laughs) yeah. Good luck to you. Yeah. 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 It makes sense. Well, it's a wonderful story. Where, where, what are you doing now? Where, where can people get in touch with you if they want to kind of reach out? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I got a couple of things going on. Um, after I sold, I ended up going into more of a coaching role. I had a lot of companies in the e-commerce space that were like, I don't know what you're doing, but like you're selling one of the hardest products in the world. Like how are you selling that online? Like, mm. you know. So I started doing some mentoring. Uh, I started doing live events before COVID at my house. I bring in like eight or nine companies Oh, have like cool. this really interpersonal experience in my house and I just basically dissect their company. Uh, so I'm still doing that. I just can't do the live events. Um, and then about six months ago, I partnered with the guy that was running all my Google AdWords account, or all my Google AdWords stuff. Uh, and we started buying up pet businesses. So we actually bought five or six brands in, since February, looking at probably another two or three to acquire. Uh, and we're just kind of doing the same thing, but that the PE firm did, but we're just rolling them all together under our own brand and kind of building the same thing in the pet space. So great. Would I have heard of any of the, the pet companies? You want to give my plug? No, they were mostly Amazon based and then I'm using my skill set to pull them off of Amazon. Um, 
So there's a couple brands under it. Uh, one is vetnaturals.com. Uh, the other one is canine nature supplements. And then hmm. um, if anybody just wants my brain dump, I do a brain dump on my blog for free. It's just garyneelan.com. And I just, anytime I have like a new strategy that we're using, I really just drop it in there and explain it and walk you through my process. That's awesome. Okay. So we'll link to uh, the blog in, in the show notes. They'll be at awesome. Uh Gary, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It was, uh, it was yeah. fun to hear your story. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.